0: Good morning. Good morning. It's my pleasure to welcome you once again to By Grace. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Second Samuel. If you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will come up on the screens around me. And also there is probably a Bible within arm's reach in the seat pockets of the chairs around you. I remind us that this is God's word. That as I read the following verses, they're not just wisdom from the past or myths for us to remember and learn lessons from. This is the very words of God. These are the very words of God. Today we're going to continue our verse by verse journey through 2nd Samuel in chapter 14. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and a daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we draw near to worship you today, you hear our songs of praise and gratitude. You hear our prayers of supplication and request. Father, you also draw near to us to speak, to bring restoration, to bring peace, to bring about your mercy and forgiveness. And Father, we are desperately in need of all of these things and more. So come and speak to your people. Come and give us eyes that we might see as you see. Come and give us ears that we might hear your voice and discern it clearly from all the rest of the noise in our lives. Come and give us new hearts. Stir faith in us that we might love you all the more and follow you all our days. And we ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people agree. Amen. Today we continue our study of Absalom, remembering, of course, that he murdered his brother in cold blood. This is what led him to those three years of self-imposed exile. For years, too, in fact, he had worked on and hatched a plan to brutally murder his brother who was also David's son. He did so in revenge for what that brother had done to their sister, Tamar, of whom his Absalom's daughter is named. David, in his outrage over the murderous scheme that led to the cold-blooded execution of his son, wanted justice for that murder. Justice being the execution of the one who murdered. So, Absalom runs away, runs to Gesher to stay far from David's gaze or grasp. He does this for his own sake. In fact, if you study the life of Absalom you will see that he is always acting exclusively in his own interests or what he perceives to be his own interests. And wherever he goes, disaster follows. Rarely for him, often it's the collateral damage of the people around him, but his schemes are always cooking on the furnace of his own desire. So when we pick up the story, he is in this exile, and after what one theologian referred to as Joab's pro-Absalom campaign, through trickery and deceit, the preying on the work of a widowed woman so that she would tell lie after lie after lie in the king's presence, to manipulate him, to try and expose him as hypocrite, David eventually relents. He allows Absalom to return to Israel. But it's to return to Israel at large, even Jerusalem at large. But David decrees that Absalom must remain away from David's presence. He can come home, He can come to his family home and lands, but he is not to come before the king. David should have ruled in justice, but as many of the men of the book of Samuel deal with, they have the wrong kind of mercy on their heirs, on their sons. There's a long thread that you could pull on that we don't have time for today, Of the men who do not force and discipline their children the way that God commands. Not in cruelty, not punishment for punishment's sake, but discipline for change's sake. But David relents. He consents to the return of Absalom. Another way of saying that is that David simply caved in. He succumbed to their orchestrated scheming and deception. And he does so even knowing that they are deceptions and schemes. This puzzles me at times. David, you understand what's happening. Why do you yield when you should stand firm? And then I, of course, look at the desires of my own heart the choices of my own life experience, and I go, oh yeah, okay. I too can be weak when I'm supposed to be strong. I too can be flexible when I'm supposed to be immovable. So David yields. And in that, Absalom is away and then brought home mostly. But he's not all the way home He does not yet have reconciliation or restoration in David's eyes, the king's eyes. The king's gaze upon him still sees guilt, even if he covers it with mercy. So what happens in the passage in front of us is that Absalom will ultimately give David an ultimatum. He essentially will appeal, and we'll get to how in a moment... But his appeal is one of receive me fully or execute me. I do not want to live distant in the guilty gaze of my king. All he's going to end up having to do is a little bit of groveling. And then the whole murder plan, the whole years of exile, all of that comes to a quick and thoroughly dissatisfying end. To everyone but David and certainly Absalom. (laughs) One commentator said, this is the story of the greatest comeback in Israel's political history. The self-imposed exile leads to full return and restoration. And actually, if you look ahead, he'll lead the whole kingdom in a moment to his own judgment, and Israel's collateral disaster. But that's the ultimatum that will come. Receive me or kill me. There's no more room for these half measures. So, let's dive in. So, we learn here that, that Joab has made this Absalom campaign for his return. David relents Under the single condition, verse 24, that he must live apart in his own lands. He's no longer welcome before the king or at the king's table. He is never to come into the king's presence. And then we're told, verses 25, 26, and 27. These are a weird interruption of the narrative here. In fact, if you wanted to, you could kind of keep going from verse 24 right into 28 and have no interruptions. The text would flow smoothly. Listen, the end of verse 24. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and didn't come into the king's presence. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. All the information that you need is still present. The narrative fully formed and flowing. So why do we get this interruption? Why do we have these three verses that come infringing upon this narrative? I'll tell you in a little bit. But let's follow the action first and then we'll come back to those verses. So Absalom lived those two years in Jerusalem without coming into David's presence. And then eventually, Absalom sends for Joab. Now remember, Joab was the one who heated and, and, and created these schemes and deceptions to, pry and, to try and bring Absalom home. So you would think they're like good friends, right? Joab went to great lengths to bring Absalom back. And we sort of get the sense as we study uh, uh, Joab as a character in these stories that he's always self-serving. So he must see Absalom as a key to gaining power or, or some other political end. But here we have, after this huge campaign to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem, there's complete distance between them. In fact, he won't even answer his calls. Listen to how this unfolds in 29. Absalom sends for Joab... And he wants him to send him to the king. Absalom wants Joab to send him, basically give him cover for allowing him to go stand before David. Absalom wants to be in good graces with David. I'll distinguish that from being reconciled to David. He wants David to see him in a good light, not in a guilty one. So Absalom prays upon Joab, makes his request, but Joab won't come and visit him. He'll never pick up the phone. Then Absalom says to his servants, see Joab's fields next to mine? He's got barley there. It's already been harvested. Go set it on fire. In other words... He won't pick up the phone. He won't answer my texts. What do the kids call it these days? He's getting ghosted. So in the midst of getting ghosted, he's willing to go to such extreme lengths as to destroy the barley that's already been harvested, brought together, put in the barn. Shouldn't there be more action between I send request, I send request, I send request, burn my barns down. Yeah. Right, like that, that escalates too quickly for my thinking. So maybe there's some elements here that are, that are not narrated for us. But you still understand that Absalom is willing to use abusive power to accomplish his personal desires. His personal purposes. So they do it. I mean, I imagine if you work for Absalom, you do all kinds of things. I imagine it's sort of like being a butler or a chauffeur for the mob boss. You see a lot. You even do some. So here the servants go and set fire to the barley stockpile. That's what we're told at the end of verse 30. So guess what? Joab decides to go see Absalom. The abuse of power accomplishes Absalom's intended purpose. I will hurt him to get what I want. Dangerous. Literally dangerous to be. In Absalom's crosshairs. I imagine in this moment, Joab learned the lesson. Absalom is not a man who is to be ignored. He's not a man to be trifled with. Despite all that Joab has done, it's not enough. It's not enough. And so he and his world, his home, they are Just tools to Absalom. People and property, possessions, meaningless in Absalom's eyes if they're not used for his sake. Joab gets the message. He arose and he went to Absalom. He went directly to his house and he asks him the pregnant question. Why have your servants set my field on fire? Right? Why have you destroyed my crops? This is what I feed my family with, both directly and indirectly. Why would you do this to me? Why would you hurt me and my family? Because I ignored you a little? because I was busy with other things, because I was scared of your request? You you burned down my barley? Absalom answered Joab. Behold, this is his great thinking. Listen to this pragmatic wisdom of Absalom. I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. <laughs> Anybody notice an apology? I mean, right? Abusive people do not apologize for their abuse. They see it as necessary to accomplish their purposes. Do you think Joab got the message? Who don't you ignore? Who should you never cross? If you're his friend, he'll burn down your fields. What will he do to his enemies? Oh, that's right, murder them even if they're his half brother. Even family's not off limits to him and to his evil. But notice the question within the excuse. He wants Joab to give him the opportunity to stand in the king's presence that he's royally decreed never to enter. Again, he's trying to find a loophole. He's trying to worm and wedge his way in. And what's the question? The question is this. Why am I allowed to pretend to live in Jerusalem under your blessing when I'm not actually blessed by you. I'd be freer in gesher out of your gaze and certainly well free from your grasp than living here in Jerusalem under the fear, (laughs) you think Absalom's actually afraid, of David's displeasure. It'd be better if I was just still gone. I think all of Israel would, if they understood what was coming, would agree. Yes, we agree, get out of here. Or be executed in justice as the law demands. So here's the ultimatum Find a way to get me in the presence of David where I can say to him, if you still see me as guilty, kill me. Otherwise, restore my privileges to the powerful throne room and courts of David. Hear this very clearly. There's no desire for friendship, right? There's no desire for the father-son relationship to be restored. All I want is access to the political arena at its highest point. Fathers and sons, Always have complicated relationships. Yes? I'll take your non-nodding as agreement. Fathers and sons have complicated relationships. What does brotherhood look like between father and son? What does friendship look like between father and son? Well, it doesn't just look like, give me your money. Give me your power. Give me access to all the things that are yours. That's what Luke 15 clearly shows us. Broken relationship between father and son looks like. I just want to use you for what I can squeeze out of you. Your father is for you an orange from which you just want juice. So you're willing to squeeze him. And cut him to get what you want out. That's all Absalom's doing here. There's no desire for tender friendship, there's no desire for reconciliation, for reestablishing parent and son relationship. There's no honor left for the father under whom the son was made and lived. Absalom does not want David. Be very clear on this point. Absalom does not want David. He wants David's throne. He wants David's influence. He wants David's name and connections. He does not want David. He doesn't want love. Think about that for a second. He does not want to answer for what he's done. He does not want to deal in the complexities of his own emotional makeup, his thirst and desire. He just wants access to power, so that he can burn down whoever fields he needs to, to accomplish his own ends. He's going to kill me, let him kill me. He already knows David's not going to kill him. How does he know that? Because he's alive. Right? Because he's alive. If David wanted to kill him, could he have done it by now? Either openly as king and justly or, you know, spent some time with Joab and figured out how to do it behind the scenes? If David wanted him dead, he'd be dead. And Absalom knows it. So let me pretend to submit. Let me play pretend as I go to my knees and my belly and stretch out my arms before the king, all the while knowing that he's one step closer to putting the knife to David's throat, metaphorically at least. So Joab, verse 33, we're told, goes to the king and tells him, Hey, you know that favor you owe me for that stuff I do? Yeah, I have to call in my chips. Okay, what are you calling them in for? Absalom. Sorry, did did you say Absalom? Like we've talked about this. Haven't I decreed on this? Do you think I burn with less heat now for my son who is murdered? Mental note. Parents of murdered children... That sting doesn't lessen unless soaked in the blood of Christ. It's the only way forgiveness can be found. So David is still hot towards Absalom, or he would have absolved him already. But here's Joab calling on his chips, pushing him into the center of the table. He's all in as Absalom's tool. So Absalom comes to the king, bowed himself on his face, To the ground. He's groveling before the king. That's all he has to do, right? Just grovel a little and it's all over. (laughs) Absalom knows these men well, does he not? He knows the buttons to push, he knows the questions to ask, the words to say. He knows how to play the chessboard of moving parts, whether they're people or property or power. And in the end, in the end of this chapter, he gets exactly what he wanted, what he worked for. David kisses him. Now, there are many who try to talk about this kiss as though David planted Succession upon Absalom with this pucker. He doesn't. He doesn't at all. The king kisses Absalom, but it only confers not the right of succession, but the signified symbol of reconciliation and restoration to royal favor. That's it, that's what the kiss means. Kiss doesn't mean, okay, you're now the one who will lead as king in my absence after my departure. This is not a rite of succession. This is a signifying act. It's a symbol of restored affection, restored favor. It terrifies me at times. That we can be this gullible. That we can be played. Moved around on the chessboard of our own lives by evil men with evil intention. Evil men with evil intention. It makes me ask the question... Why do the wicked prosper? Right? I mean, if you're neck deep in this story, the bad guy is winning. He has no yielding to God. He has no pursuit of the righteous next step. He has no willingness to be transformed. He wants to remake his circumstances according to his own image. He yields to no one, including his father, the king. On how many levels does David have the right to rule over Absalom? Right? As his father, as his king, in the theocracy of Israel, the chosen people under who? Yeah. How much right does David have to rule over the life and affairs of his son and yet he's constantly going to be manipulated by him, wounded by him, injured in ways that won't be restored on this side of heaven? Why do the wicked win? Why do they prosper? Why do their schemes become successful? I mean, that's what we have in 14. This whole chapter is about wicked men succeeding and righteous men yielding and becoming complicit in their plan of success. So let me ask us, was this return and reinstatement proof that Absalom has God's favor? Now let's lean into this, don't walk away. Is this definitive proof that God forgives Absalom? That God puts his hand of favor on Absalom? And we want to say no, right? But the circumstances, the overwhelming evidence, make no mistake, in your life and in my life, just as in his life, we tend to try and read the circumstance to find favor. You ever had a bad day and all of a sudden your tire blows out? And you're just like, yeah, one more log for the fire, Lord. And you start praying these ridiculous prayers of like, I'm really sorry for. Just me? I think there's a couple of us. You guys can laugh at our expense. How many times on a great day do you throw a log on the fire of gratitude? Doesn't this plan only work one way? We look at all the hardship and we think that somehow it's all punitive. I got that flat tire because God's still grudging me about. Ask the blood of Jesus if that statement's true. Ask the gospel of grace if there's any validity to that thought. How often do we try and look at the circumstances of others to find God's favor. Do we so easily forget that God can curse with wealth? Isn't that part of what Jesus is pointing to when he says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for the largest mammal in their daily life to pass through a sewing needle? Camels don't go through needles. So how do rich men get to heaven? They yield everything. Their heart, their life, their family, their wealth, just like we do. But self-satisfaction is often a welcomed idol. Self-determination, a prized value in our culture and many others. How many times do we look at the circumstances of others and say, with open and resounding, full-throated celebration, God is with them. The bigger church is better. It must be. Why? Because it's bigger. That doctor has more wealth. He must be better. Right? That family has more generational wealth secured and stored up Therefore, God has favor on them. How many times do we use silly circumstances or serious circumstances like a divining rod to try and search for God's favor and then in our folly call it out? God's favor is here and not there. You think God's favor is nowhere to be found in the slums of India? those in the bottom, very bottom of the caste system, rummaging through filth and garbage to find food. There's no blessing for them over there. There's there's no hope of the gospel there. There's no favor to be found. Circumstances are lousy divining rods They do not expose what is true. And the scripture wrestles with this more often than you might imagine. Why do the wicked prosper? Job 21 tells us that they spend their days in prosperity and suddenly they go down to Sheol. They spend their, he's talking about the wicked. They spend their days lavishing in their lifestyles And then a finger snaps and they're in hell. (laughs) Jesus tells parables like that, doesn't he? Psalm 73. For I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How many times do we see the prosperity in whatever form? I'm using a lot of money illustrations, but it's an arena Far larger than finances? Why does their family look peaceful? Why are their parents both alive? We could ask a thousand of these questions. Ten thousand of these questions. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that sometimes evil men seem hashtag blessed? With success, power, free from justice. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is it? Is it because God is somehow smiling down on them? No, he's judging them. Did you know that God can bless with poverty? Did you know that? Just as he can curse with wealth, he can bless with poverty. God so thoroughly orchestrates the affairs of men. He so sovereignly governs the circumstances of all lives that he is both good to his people and preparing for judgment to all others. Why is it that we appeal to the circumstances of life as proof that God is pleased here and displeased there. This story does not unfold because Absalom has God's favor. It unfolds because God promised in judgment for David and Bathsheba that trouble would rise up within David's household. That's what this is a story of. God's judgment unfolding patiently. You guys think he's patient with your own sanctification? I mean, we all do if we're honest. Lord, shouldn't I be more different now? Can you hurry up? This chain on my ankle, I'm tired of it. How much more the patience shown? to the objects of wrath, preparing for destruction. God is not pleased with them or their actions. Absalom is advancing his judgment, not his career. This is the unfolding reality of David's judgment. And soon, trust me, it's coming. If you want a sneak peek, you can fast forward to chapter 18, but you will see there the reality that judgment is coming. It just isn't yet. So let's pause for a moment and go back to the, the verses that interrupted us. These verses 25, 6, and 27. These standalone verses, they're interrupting the narrative, and they totally seem unnecessary to the story. And yet, I believe that they're supremely significant. They appear unnecessary because they talk about Absalom's good looks, verse 25, his hair, the guy's like pre-Trump Trump, verse 26, and they talk about his beautiful family. Why would you insert that here? The guy produces heavy hair. What is he, a sheep? What's with the weighing of the hair? I have no idea. But apparently he cared a lot about his locks. His impressive good looks. His beautiful hairdo. I'm not jealous. I don't need hair. And he has a beautiful family. With a daughter named after the abused and assaulted aunt. What's happening here? What's happening here is an echo of Saul. The longtime listener, the student of this passage will hear and shudder at this presentation of Absalom's physical appearance because he will be a man of style over substance. These are the three things that we learn and remember about Absalom. Good looks, hair, and a family? Ralph, uh, Dale Ralph Davis calls him in this moment Mr. Israel. Right? Absalom would win the pageant if there was a pageant. Swimsuit and all, he would win. He's Mr. Israel. He's long on image and short on substance. But let me ask you to step back for a moment with me. These are the three characteristics we're given right before Absalom's going to take power in Israel. These three things? Superficial much? If you were looking at your own life, are these the things that sum up all that you want to know about your leaders? Is this all you care about? A Cheshire cat smile and lovely hair? Is there not a desire for more in him, more of him? Don't you want leaders who have more than these physical characteristics to lead you? So what three things best summarize you? What three things best introduce you? What are the three things you want your family members to remember about you? What are your three most important aspects? What do you want people to know? What do you want them to know about your character, your values, your experiences? He's handsome. He has great hair. He has a growing family. Is that enough investigation for the leader of your life and kingdom? You should hear the echo of Saul Remember all the way back in 1 Samuel 9. He was reported to be a handsome young man. And he was a head taller than everyone else. (laughs) Do you hear the echo? Do you hear the evil chorus being sung? We look at the outside. God looks where? Even the prophet of God is tempted to lay the crown upon David's oldest brother's head. We're so fascinated with height. Do you know that studies have proven, and I am totally bitter about this, that the taller you are, the larger your church is? No, no, literally, across the board, across all the denominations, Catholic, Protestant, the taller the pastor is, the more perceived successful he is. Sorry. Now, I love you guys. I don't want a different church. But this is the Absalom trap, isn't it? Looks, charm, charisma, they are all without submission or delight in Yahweh. Don't you want a leader who delights in his Lord? Don't you want a king who rules in justice and righteousness, not Political power. Inevitably, this will lead to disaster. That's the Absalom trap. It will lead to disaster. It will lead to disaster for Absalom, for Israel, and even for us. Godliness, holiness passion for Jesus, standing firm on God's word, contending for Christ's kingdom, stewarding God's resources for God's purposes, delighting in submission to Christ. Should not these be the hallmark of our leaders, our pastors and elders? This is exactly what's laid out in the New Testament for the kind of men who are fit to rule in the church. Never perfect men. Never perfect men, always a plurality of men who can call each other on our sins and draw us back to our Savior. So what's our application? How do we respond to the rest of this text? I want to give you three thoughts and then a conclusion. First thought, circumstances are perceived. It sounds so silly, doesn't it? But circumstances are only understood by observation or some level of sensual, sensory perception. Our culture has a folk phrase for this, that it's often in the eye of the beholder. One man's trash is another man's. Yeah. Circumstances are perceived this side of glory. And they're always perceived by dull or broken spectacles. We call life, ourselves, our experiences. None of us perceive perfectly. So none of us are fit to judge rightly. Circumstances are perceived. Second, circumstances are temporary. Circumstances are temporary. Very favored men can be in very unfavorable circumstances. Take the great hymn writer, John Owen. Take the great Christian, John Newton. Slave trader turned blind pastor and he writes amazing grace for us? If you interrupt the timeline of his life and you see him as a slave ship supervisor, do you think he's favored? Can you look at the circumstances and think you will be one of the greatest, most beloved hymn writers in the English-speaking world? Maybe the globe. Circumstances are always temporary. Things change. Power comes, power goes. Money flows in one direction and then another. Third. Not only are our circumstances perceived and temporary, they are also complex. Can can we agree that life itself is complex? Only God understands circumstances perfectly. Therefore, only he is fit to judge them clearly and rightly. Let us remember these three things the perception, the temporary nature, and the ultimate complexity, so that we are never seeking to to say, oh, that's providence, that he has the favorable outcome. Because if you look at the end of this story, Absalom is returned to glory. He's absolved of his crimes. It looks very easily like he can point to his life and say, you know that, that verse that Romans that, that the Apostle Paul's going to write many years from now, that all things work together for good? Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> Should he agree with that? I mean, yeah, because it's true. But in his case, all things are working together for his judgment, not his good. Be careful in pronouncing circumstances to be something clearly, because they make a terrible God. So where's Yahweh in this passage? He's reigning. He's reigning. Who's the sovereign? David? Yahweh. Judging by circumstances, does it look like Jesus is blessed? If you look on the day of crucifixion, what Jesus himself calls the hour of glory, would you look at him and go, definitely blessed? Definitely. Can we just stop taking a picture of a car, posting it on our Instagram under the hashtag blessed? Can we do that, please? No man suffered more wrath. No man suffered the wickedness of injustice greater than Jesus did. And yet, isn't he the man of sorrows? the same one given the name above every name, that name that we sing, that name that we use in the anchor of our prayers, Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of sinners, of whom I think we all can agree, I'm the chief. Circumstances, no despite them, without holding them in view, you and I can trust the Lord. We can submit to his unfolding plans. Without clear perception, we can trust him. It's the great theologian, Corey Ten Boom, that I paraphrase when I say, we can trust our unknown future to our known God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day that you love us, that you are with us, that you have done all that is necessary to lead us and guide us and guard us, to grow us in godliness and grace. Father, forgive us for the times we use people as pawns, children, siblings, parents, coworkers, neighbors, strangers. Father, forgive us for the ways we fail to perceive what you have always known. Lord, may we trust you more. May we yield to you more. May we let the noise of our circumstances die down, that we might hear the glory of your voice, the promise of your words, and the hope of the life to come. Lord, we desire to perceive better, but you perceive best. We desire to see our circumstances changed in what we would describe as better. But you know in this life, they're all temporary. And Father, we know that you know that your plans are best. May we trust in that all the more today. And all God's people agree.